This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Friday, December 15th. Canada's finance ministers are meeting ahead of a new year and the same cost of living challenges. Coming up, the Ontario finance minister on whether new relief is coming for Canadians in 2024. Plus, a third apology from the House of Commons speaker, but it doesn't satisfy the Conservatives. Will this controversy follow Greg Fergus into the new year? And news media learn how much they'll get in a new deal with Google. But without Facebook's cooperation, is the news industry really better off? We begin in Toronto, where federal and provincial finance ministers have just wrapped their annual meeting, where affordability topped the agenda. We all know that interest rates are a real challenge for millions of Canadians, so it was important for us to speak about the economic outlook today. We also discussed housing, which is the central priority for so many Canadians. And of course, we spoke about the Canada Pension Plan. For more on what came out of this finance minister's meeting, Peter bethlen Falvey is Ontario's Minister of Finance, and he joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you again, David. So coming into this meeting, you were stressing your province's need for infrastructure, or for everything from housing to transit to roads. Did you get any clear commitments or directions from the federal government on whether that will be addressed? Uh, we didn't get any commitments, uh, and it's really important that we do, and we had do in time for Budget 2024. You know, when you get over a million people coming in uh, to the, the country, over half a million into, into Ontario, maybe that's going to happen again this year. Uh, you know, we need to really have bold action on infrastructure, housing, transportation. We have the Canadian Infrastructure, Canadian Investment Plan that... Uh, is maturing and, uh, and uh, was an 180 billion dollar plan. So I think this is this is something that, frankly, all provinces uh, were rowing in the same direction. Municipalities across Canada are rowing in that direction. We need the federal government to row in that direction as well. That means uh, uh, an infrastructure fund where we all participate to be sure that we can house and move and educate all these people coming to Canada. It sounds like you share some of those priorities with the federal government, and I guess I'm not surprised, given sort of the more modest nature of the fall economic statement, that we didn't see big commitments today. But did you get a sense that you have shared priorities in a common direction as you're in the cycle now of planning for the budgets for next year? Well, you'll have to ask Christian Freeland that, but I mean, part of the the reason for getting together is to make sure you can hear from all. Uh, provinces and territories of what what the priorities are what they're we're hearing on the ground what some of our challenges are and I was really struck by the unanimity right across uh, the country uh, and beyond uh, in the north and all parts about the need to you know welcome the people coming to to our great country but to do more than just say here's a here's a Molson export and good luck to you Uh, we have an obligation uh, to 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 do our part uh, and infrastructure, I can think of no better way uh, to, to put money, taxpayer money, to 
to be able to house, to be able to move, to be able to put the services in place through an infrastructure fund. We've done it before. We've shown through COVID that when we work together, we can do amazing things. And there seems to be broad consensus and unanimity across the country on this. Just on that, Minister, uh, you know, uh, Ontario obviously is a, a net recipient of a lot of the immigration that comes into Canada. And, and we're seeing in public opinion polls uh, a resistance to some of the high numbers of uh, newcomers we welcome to Canada each year, not based on xenophobia, but because of the competition for housing and the, and the, you know, and, and the cost of living challenges that, that people are facing through this affordability crunch. Are you worried that that could become an anti-immigration sentiment if governments don't get a handle uh, on this particular challenge? Well, I guess my concern would be I think we have a broad a consensus across this country to to be a beacon of hope and, and uh, freedom and democracy to attract people from around the world. And just about every province's population is growing from PEI to British Columbia to the north to the middle. So I think what they're really saying is well, if you're going to open up uh, immigration like the federal government has done, make sure you can take care of them. Uh, that's what people are saying. And if you can't take care of them, then you have to reduce the numbers. And you, you talked about another thing about the cost of living. You know, when they come here, they got to pay the carbon tax. And so we raise that again. The carbon tax is an issue of affordability right now. People are hurting. We all agree, climate change, we're going to do our part. We're going to get investments in place to get the net zero. We're going to do it differently. We're going to get there. We care about the environment. We care deeply about it. But we can't put it on the backs of people who, in a lot of places, have to use a vehicle, have to use fuel to heat their home, move goods, move people. So uh, that was another big point that was made today. But you, you know, Minister, since, since you and some of the other provinces have been, have been you know, uh, pushing for the removal of the carbon tax or carve, expanded carve-outs uh, as a solution to the affordability crunch, there's been a lot of studies that have come out that have made it clear that if you get rid of this, you also get rid of the rebates, and, and the majority of houses, households would actually be worse off. So how do we square the arguments coming from the politicians and the analysis coming from economists on that? Well, you know, that's uh, up to Ottawa to, to be able to support uh, uh, the, the people who wouldn't get the benefit, and that's the more vulnerable and lower income. Uh, what, what we're doing in Ontario, we cut the gas tax by over five cents. We've uh, continued that on. Other measures we've taken, over 10 cents a litre at the pumps. That's helping people who are taking their kids to school, the people who are driving to work. That's, that's helping the farmers. That's helping people use, uh, who use uh, a fuel, uh, natural gas to heat their homes. Uh, so, you know, we got to recognize that this is the environment we're in today and many, many people are hurting. And collectively, we all have to do our part in whatever form it takes uh, to recognize that and help people today. Do you think any of those uh, breaks at the pump and the other measures that we've seen, the affordability measures, that, that, that aren't sort of targeted based on means but are broad-based, do you think that is playing any effect in, in keeping inflation a little bit sticky? We've seen analysis, though, from some of the banks suggesting that government spending at all levels and, and giving benefits to people to deal with uh, sticker shock is, in fact, keeping inflation up a little bit. You know what I think, and we heard from the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada today, you know, a big component of inflation is shelter costs, mortgage costs, rental costs. That's a big component of inflation. Um, you know, obviously, we saw yesterday the Federal uh, Reserve in the U.S. In signal that they might lower rates three times next year. Uh, they, they are, and, and we saw the markets rally uh, because of that. You know, Canada was the, one of the first to raise interest rates. 
Uh, I can tell you on the ground, David, uh, I see it in my riding in Pickering, uh, Pickering-Uxbridge. Uh, you know, people, those costs are really hurting, and that, uh, unless interest rates, there's some relief, uh, that's going to continue to be a big component of inflation. Did Tiff Macklin give you any indication on whether or not, uh, he, did he give you any forward guidance today on what he's thinking in terms of his next rate decisions in the new year? No, no, he wouldn't do that. And, of course, they're independent and they're data-driven. Mm-hmm. But uh, we felt it was important, uh, and I think uh, uh, Christian Freeland felt it was important that he hear from uh, politicians and, uh, the, you know, the people responsible for fiscal policy. So we don't really get into monetary policy. Right. Uh, he doesn't really get into f- fiscal policy, but maybe sometimes we do a little bit of both. No, sometimes, he sometimes gets letters from your boss, Premier Ford, though. So that, that does happen every once in a while. I, I just wonder, I, I, on the other issue of the Canada pension plan, I know this was discussed today, but it seems like we're, we're, we're not really any closer to getting clarity on, on what might happen if Alberta proceeds. There's going to be a process where the chief actuary is going to meet with provincial officials in, in January. Where are things now on this, this question of whether or not Alberta uh, leaves the CPP or not? Well, first off, David, let's be clear. I believe, and I wrote a letter to have the first meeting, Christy agreed a couple months ago, to discuss this issue. We're better and stronger together. We start from that premise. We want Alberta to uh, to stay in, and uh, and they have the right to leave, but... Uh, given the circumstances, let's be very thoughtful and deliberate. The Act has a mechanism on how you can leave, and there's a right to leave, but there's a lot of devils in the details. Uh, this isn't something you want to rush. You want to be very thoughtful. And I think many Canadians really don't want to worry about their pension plan. They want to make sure if they work in Alberta and retire in PEI, uh, there's portability, that it works, it's sustainable. Uh, so it's worth the time and effort to make sure uh, that we have a process that's very transparent and open. And, and we had a very constructive conversation on that today. I, I remember the last time we talked, just as a final point, uh, you said if Ontario used the same assumptions that Alberta used in its calculations of its share, the two provinces would take in excess of like 112% uh, of what is in the fund. So, so settling on a common set of assumptions for who is entitled to what seems key in this. Uh, do, do you think w- when, when everybody gets together in January, you'll be able to settle on that so there is some real clarity as to how this process will move ahead? Well, I don't know, but you, you made a great point, and sounds like you're a numbers guy, which I really like. Uh, the math has to work. There, there's a, it has to add up to 100. And you're 100% right that uh, if you took the methodology that the advisors for Alberta used and used it for Ontario, some estimated that it would be 120% of the assets. Mm. So I think the other provinces and territories might, might be a little concerned about it. It's got to add up to 100 but it's also highly dependent on the assumptions because these are long-tail liabilities and assets. So we want to be very uh, thorough and deliberate and work together. And that's what we achieved today was moving that a little further ahead and meeting again in January. Okay. Well, well being a numbers guy, I, I can see that we're out of time. Peter Bethlenfalvi, Ontario's Minister of Finance, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> you're, you're good on that, David. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. The final details have been released on Google's deal with the federal government to pay Canadian news outlets. A first of its kind uh, in the world where we have a transparent and and viable legislation um, where smaller news outlets also have a seat at the negotiating table with the tech giants. 
Google has agreed to pay $100 million annually to Canadian news companies. Two-thirds of the funding will be distributed to print and digital media, while the remaining third will be used to fund broadcasters. The public broadcaster, CBC Radio Canada, will be capped at just 7% of that pool. There's also about $5 million in administrative costs. Now, the federal government's Online News Act comes into effect next week, but Meta remains absent from the bargaining table. Paul Deegan is the president and CEO of News Media Canada, which represents hundreds of outlets across the country. He joins me now. Mr. Deegan, it's good to speak with you. Great to see you, David. I see the Christmas tree behind you. Are these regulations the gift you were hoping for this holiday season? Well, we got 63 million reasons to be smiling right now. So, uh, you know, we're very appreciative in terms of what's happened. I have to say Google has been terrific to work with uh, over these last few months. Uh, you know, they're obviously a difficult or a tough negotiator, as is everyone in this, but we've come to a really good spot. And I really want to salute the work of Minister Pascal Saint-Ange. She inherited a very difficult uh, file and she's done an outstanding job. She's been absolutely terrific at dealing with stakeholders, listening to all of our various concerns. And I think she's landed the plane in a really good spot. Okay, I, I want to walk through some math uh, that I saw presented by Michael Geist, uh, who I'm sure you're aware is not a fan uh, of this arrangement, not a fan of this legislation. And he lays out that in his estimates, Google was already paying about $50 million to news companies. Meta was paying about $20 million to news companies. And so what you're left with here when you deduct the administrative costs is a net gain of about $25 million in his numbers. When you subtract the lost value of all the traffic from Facebook and, and Instagram that news companies relied on, is the industry really that much further ahead with where we are today? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, uh, before uh, the Online News Act, we had about Google and Meta did deals with about a dozen uh, publishers in Canada. Uh, I don't know exactly what their deals were, mm -hmm. um, but now you've got a situation where all eligible publishers will be entitled to compensation for Google. And we see on the publishing side, at least, it working out to roughly in the neighborhood of $20,000 a journalist. And that's really on par with the same deal that the New York Times got. So you're going to see community weekly newspapers across Canada, for example, and, and folks like my friend Jeff Elgie, who you've got coming up next, yep. getting roughly $20,000 per journalist. And we think that's a very good number. And this is under a durable framework, you know, a, a legislative and regulatory framework where it's sort of not at the whim of big tech in terms of who they're paying to and how much. Mm -hmm. So we've got a, a solid framework in place where we're going to have many more winners under this scenario. Okay, I, I'm not, uh, this question is not meant to cast aspersions on, on smaller media outlets because local news is the spine of everything we do in this industry. But, but I wonder with the, with the change in this and with the withdrawal of Meta, some of the bigger institutional papers in the big, the Globe and Mail, for example, the Toronto Star, yep. it, it looks to me like they could actually be worse off uh, under these arrangements. Uh, is that a so, possibility? So so in terms of meta, like if, if you look just globally uh, right now, uh, they are not doing licensing agreements. So, for example, The New York Times concluded one uh, with Google, but not with meta. So, you know, I, I, I think in terms of the uh, meta has got to come to terms with are they prepared to pay publishers globally or not? You saw the comments from Rachel Curran the other day, which would seem to indicate not. So, you know, I, I think everyone has to look at this as the the money that is now coming from Google, which is guaranteed money, it's 100 million bucks a year overall, 63 million for news publishers, indexed to inflation. We've got a much more solid situation than we did before.
The, the, the split of about two-thirds uh, for newspaper and digital yeah. publishers, one-third for the broadcasters. I know you represent hundreds of the organizations on, on, on that other side, on that two, for the other side of the side I work on. Uh, would you say that's a, a fair split of the funds? Look, I, I'd say it's fair. fair. I mean, the, the Parliamentary Budget Office, their initial estimate was that two-thirds of the money would go to broadcasters, one-third to us. We never thought that would happen. That just made no sense whatsoever. Um, I think it's, it is equitable. I think the, you know, one point to make is the public broadcaster, and then, listen, there would be a range of views on our members about the CBC getting anything. But the fact is, you know, the CBC does high quality journalism in this country. And, uh, you know, you deserve to be compensated for that. I think the question really was how much. Mm. And I think the minister struck about the right balance with this. It also sends an important signal to other public broadcasters around the world that their content is valued. So out of self-interest, I could argue that we should get all of the money. But the fact is, on a principled basis, uh, you know, you produce content and you should be paid for that. That's And that's what the Online News Act is all about. It's It's about being publishers and broadcasters being compensated for the work that their hardworking journalists produce. Uh, where do you think we are right now in terms of meta? Uh, I mean, there's no indication they're coming back. Uh, and it seems like, you know, this may have precipitated their permanent exit. Do you think that is the permanent state of things right now, that Google will be the only real tech company participating in this framework in any meaningful way? So honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, the one thing I, I would say is the, you know, Meta's decision, I don't think it has anything to do with the Online News Act. It's really, you know, looking at this globally, are they paying for news or not? You saw things like Campbell Brown exiting, things like that, which would seem to indicate that they're pulling away from news. I think to be clear as, as a company as to what they want to do. The one thing I would say is, if you look at uh, at Meta without news, you know what's left on their uh, on their platform. It's you know cats and Kardashians, right? So I think for their platform to be valuable to advertisers, they need the fact based you know fact check news that folks like Jeff Elgie and his team produce. Well, so yeah. their, their platform is much stronger with news, and we would encourage them to play ball. Pascal Saint Ange has been very flexible. She's totally reasonable. She's totally accessible. Um, you know, I, I know her, her door is open and I'm sure she would love to talk to them. So, you know, we would say to them, you know, get in the game and have a discussion and let's see if we can come up with something that's fair and equitable and predictable for everybody. Right. Well, you know, the argument back from, from Meta is that random people post the content on their page. They don't go scrape it the way Google does for search engines and potential AI products. So it's a totally different business model that they feel yep. they shouldn't have to pay but, for but they, but, but they benefit from that content, and in our view, they should compensate us for it. So, they, you know, they, they, they sell advertising against it. They harvest all sorts of data, which is worth a lot of money. They should pay us. I mean, this is really sort of Jerry Maguire time for Meta. It's time to pay folks. Okay, yeah, I think the phrase was show me the money that, that, that you're looking for there if you're going with Jerry Maguire. But look, there are, there are some concerns that some smaller independent media companies and, and the inelegant phrase ethnic media may, may not get the funding they need because of this and they'll lose out to larger media conglomerates. I, I mean, do you see that playing out that way in these final regulations or do you think there's a way to make sure that they're also uh, protected in this? So, so the way the legislation is structured, so anyone who's got the qualified Canadian journalism uh, uh, tax credit status qualifies. So, for example, uh, you know, there, there's several ethnic publishers, there's minority language uh, publishers that have that status. So they'll qualify. And, and then there's also another criteria, without getting kind of technical and boring on you, where they can come in. So I, I think there's ample opportunity 
uh, for many publishers to uh, to benefit from this. And and again, you know, we would see this as being in the neighborhood of twenty thousand dollars per journalist, which is is uh, obviously very meaningful, in particular to the smallest publishers. So there still needs to be uh, uh, Paul Deegan uh, this collective bargaining body, I, I don't know what to call it, yep. that will sort of bargain on behalf of the media institutions uh, with uh, Google uh, to figure out how and determine who gets what. Where is that yep. and when do we see this thing come to life? Yeah, so, so look, I, I think that process is going to be less complicated than it, uh, it looks in terms of the regulations. Uh, we were on the phone earlier today with both the CBC and the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. Um, you know, we're prepared to simply receive the check from Google to cut them their respective checks. So meaning 30 million and 7 million. We obviously wouldn't take a fee on that. I mean, this is just a straight pass through. I, I think this is actually far less complex than people think. And, you know, the, the, the real goal is to get money flowing quickly to news businesses. But also to to have Google, who has operated you know so in a socially responsible manner and in good faith, to have them get their exemption. And uh, you know we don't think this is going to take you know six months or anything like that. This this should work much much faster than that. So, and it's in Google's self interest and in our self interest to have it work that way. So it could just flow through you, and you just kind of check to the broadcasters, and then you deal with the print it, individual it, it, people. We, we've already decided it. We literally oh, okay. had a three right. minute. Call. Yeah, and we worked it all out. I mean, this is, this is easy. And, you know, we, we don't need the CRTC involved in that. We don't need to take a fee. This is just receive a check and we write them a check. Done. Okay. Uh, Paul Deegan, I did not know that. So thank you for sharing that information with me. Paul Deegan is the president and CEO of News Media Canada. Thank you, sir. Great being with you, David, and happy holidays to you and your family. You too, sir. Okay, well, as Paul Deegan said, for more reaction on this, we have Jeff Elgy. He is the CEO of Village Media Canada, a digital-only local news publisher operating in dozens of Ontario communities, and he joins me now. Jeff, it's good to speak with you again. Good to see you again, David. Thanks for having me back. So we knew the $100 million figure the last time we spoke. We didn't quite know how it was all going to break down and what the regulations would look like. Uh, where do you think they've landed on this in terms of what it means for, for startup publishers like you? Well, um, based on the final regulations released this morning, the distribution um, with the split going 60, roughly 63% to kind of the traditional news media industry is good news for us. Um, that means instead of approximately ten dollars to $12,000 a journalist, you might be, as Paul uh, Deegan mentioned, upwards of $20,000 a journalist. Uh, for us, the math is pretty simple. We have about 90 journalists on staff. Um, that's significant money. Uh, that's right, because uh, last time we spoke, uh, you said it was about ten to twelve thousand per journalist, right? And and then there were other measures you might be able to take advantage of through the recent tax credits that were in in the budget. So this is more than I think you were expecting to receive in the final. Uh, so that, workout. Yeah, and that number was based on our expectation of an equal distribution across CBC and the private broadcasters. And in that case, it would have been that for kind of our sector. But with the regulations actually rebalancing the distribution of funds. Um, and, and giving a, a, a disproportion, a higher proportion of funds to the you know, roughly 3,500 journalists that make up the, the classic news media kind of non-broadcast sector, we now approach that upper limit. Okay, because uh, you mentioned the, the CBC, Radio Canada, and we spoke about this last time, and, and I asked you flat out whether you thought 
the company I work for should get money? You said, absolutely not. Uh, not, <laughs> not quite that bluntly. Uh, but they, they have found a solution here where they're capping what the CBC is eligible for, right? It is not based on the much larger workforce that this company has compared to other companies. And it works out to us a little, I think it'll be a little under $7 million in the final number that will be split between Radio Canada and CBC. Is that fair in your final assessment? Or do you still think that's money that should be going into the, the other pool? I think it's a it's a reasonable compromise. Like as we talked about in the last uh, call, certainly the CBC gets a, a significant amount of funding from the federal government. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think the minister's concern was to to not suggest to the rest of the world that the CBC content wasn't valuable and they shouldn't participate in it. And and I think it's a fair compromise. So I have no issue with it. Okay, uh, so Pascal Saint-Ange uh, said today that the funding translates to about $20,000 to journalists, so that aligns with, with, with what you and Paul Deegan have said. Uh, but the loss of Meta, just to go back to that point, Meta has said at yeah. a committee, I think this week, they were paying about $20 million uh, in deals with groups. Uh, Paul Deegan suggested that those were likely going to go away anyway. I, I don't know if that's the case or if C-18 and all of its other things sort of precipitated this. $20,000 to journalists, though, it sounds like you still think this is worth it, even with the loss of meta money and meta traffic. I think it depends. I, I think there's different scenarios where some some will be better off, some will, will potentially be worse off. So I think, you know, as Paul Deegan mentioned, there were some companies that had deals with both uh, Google and Facebook prior to this. And we don't know the details of those deals, but obviously the meta deals will end and the meta traffic has ended. So I think there are some scenarios, particularly potentially for larger media companies that struck deals um, earlier on that were substantial that are now going to be based on journalism expenditure exclusively. I think there's potential that in some cases there will be less money for them and potentially no meta traffic, of course. Um, I think the other scenario is if you look at small independent publishers, which I'm, I'm thrilled for this mm-hmm. because they are going to generally be included, as Paul mentioned. Um, and I think that's the best thing, that the best outcome of all of this. But I think if in some cases, if you went to a small publisher that had maybe one or two journalists and said, okay, we'll give you twenty or $40,000 a year, but by the way, you don't have meta anymore. They're gone. Um, I'm not sure that that's always a welcome outcome because I think, you know, as we know, you launch new publications, Meta was a really important tactic in, in bringing new publications to light. And uh, with that gone, it's, I think that's, that's the area of the, the industry that I'm concerned about is, is how do you start these things and get them to sustainability in a reasonable amount of time, even if you have a bit more money uh, to right. do so. Look, l- like you, I, I have no line of sight into the, the financial books necessarily of like the big media companies on the print side of the equation. Uh, but, you know, I've seen some assessments that, you know, the Globe and Mail, Torstar, the National Post, Post Media, they, they could be worse off with these changes. I don't know uh, how that works. What is your sense? Do you think it's possible that with the way this has worked out with Google, but with the loss of the meta deals, that, that those big city papers could, uh, could actually take a hit here? Yeah, I mean, it, it, use Torstar as an example, who we know had deals with both Meta and Google. So the Meta deal's lost, like our Meta deal is lost. Mm-hmm. But um, because of uh, recent issues, they've had layoffs in terms of the number of journalists. So now all of a sudden, your Meta deal is gone. Your fund is now based on the number of journalists you have. It, it's possible that the combination of those two things might put them in a worse position. You know, I don't know the nature of their deals. I don't know Postmedia's or Global Mail's. Um, I don't believe Postmedia had a deal with Meta, which is publicly known. So, you know, for them, this might put them ahead. Uh, But every scenario is a little bit different here. 
I, I heard Paul Deegan uh, praise Pascal St. Ange for this. This is a final point. Do you think this could have happened under Pablo Rodriguez, given where things were uh, in, in, on this issue under the previous minister? We have been through, this is Pascal's the, the fourth minister on this file, and she is the first one that ever met with us. Um, really? Uh, I actually think she's done a great job. I, I think she's been practical, reasonable, uh, efficient. Um, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm impressed with the way she's handled this file. No one has met with you, given all the, the small and medium-sized cities and towns in Ontario that you work in. No one from the government had met with you? Until well, and it's not even day. just... It's not even just us as Village Media. It was a whole group of us that we right. call the Local News Collective that was made up of hundreds of publications across Canada, and we could never get the attention of prior ministers. And, and um, Minister St. Ange was, was very good uh, and very, very uh, generous to, to meet with us. All, all the talking points I heard was how important local news was, right? And, and you, like we have you on because you are the face of you know, modern local news in a lot of ways uh, in Ontario. I, I'm really surprised to hear that they hadn't met with you. So do, do you think that played a role in getting to this point, the fact that more players were able to get to the table and speak to the minister responsible? I, I think it helped. I mean, you know, our, our big message was, please don't lose Google. If you lose Google at any cost, um, you're going to devastate the industry. If Meta's already gone and they're not coming back, if you also lose Google, as we talked about in our, yeah. our last interview, you're losing like 50% or more of the total traffic that we all get, really. They're, they're, you know, some are much more than that. So, so we really stressed that, um, you know, and, and, and so... Who knows if that had influenced it? We happened to have met with her just before the the uh, deal with Google was announced, about a week before, right. um, and, and hopefully that encouraged her along. But uh, I think she was on the right track, and she's certainly well informed about about the act, uh, which was good to see as well. Jeff Elgie, the CEO of Village Media Canada. Thank you for your time, sir. Have a good holiday. Thanks for having me. You too. The Speaker of the House of Commons apologized yet again today for shooting that video in his official robes in his official office. I should have never recorded that video. Not in the Speaker's uniform, not in the Speaker's office, and not for a friend who is an active politician. I am deeply sorry. I want to reassure members that nothing like this will ever happen again. Despite the apology and the assurances, the Conservatives say it is still not good enough. The official opposition believes that the Speaker cannot continue in this role and must do the right thing and put the integrity and impartiality uh, of the House first and foremost. Okay, we'll find out what this means when Parliament comes back uh, in the new year, but where does this leave the state of the House? The power panel is with me to talk about that. Susan Delacorte, Marie Vastel, Jason Markasov, and Nigan Sinclair. Uh, Nigan, let's start with you. I, I mean, this is a, obviously a big issue during the parliamentary day and the parliamentary proceedings and, and at committees, and, and it may very well gum up the machinery of the House of Commons when things come back at, at the end of January. Does this matter outside of Ottawa, even though we're talking about an important institution operating in a functional way? Is it a thing Canadians are paying attention to? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, we will yet to see. I mean, mm. it, it certainly reintroduced the country to Andrew Scheer, who's taken a big lead on this issue, and and uh, his his motion won't be debated until late January. So I think Canadians will move on past this. I mean, but the fact is, Greg Fergus has shown some rather liberal-centered decisions in his recent actions. It wasn't just the speaker video. It was also, he showed us up at functions, uh, he's showed up at events. I mean, the fact is that when we were on this very show just a few weeks ago, when he was appointed speaker, 
is saying that he's a very high-profile liberal being put into that position. So I guess we just shouldn't be surprised when liberals liberal. Uh, he's a <laughs> yeah. former national director, president of the Young Liberals, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the re- reality is that uh, Greg Fergus is going to show up at partisan events. He says he's going to review his behavior, have his staffers relook at the sort of nonpartisan position of the speaker role. But uh, I think that Canadians are really going to be looking at something else about a month and a half from now. And uh, they'll probably be far more interested in some of the legislation that was passed, especially around gun control or around Mm. the affordability laws that came out. But this will endure over a long period of time because the conservatives get some legwork out of it. To give you credit, I, I, I seem to recall you were one of the first people to flag all of this partisan history on, on this show uh, when he was picked. You know, I, I think you flagged this as a potential uh, problem. So uh, uh, it, it turned out that, that you were prescient on that. Jason, uh, where do you think this is? And also, look, kind of aside from Fergus, because he's like kind of made his own bed, obviously, and, and the conservatives in the block are, are trying to make sure he lies in it. Where, where does this go in terms of like uh, the, the way Parliament works and, and the way the political culture I- is going to play out uh, potentially in the new year? Because there is an hostility and an aggressiveness uh, in, in Parliament that that is that's pretty pretty evident for everyone. I mean, I think it, it, any one of 338 members could be uh, Speaker of the House, and I don't think it would necessarily um, you know magically improve the uh, the tone tenor. Uh, of partisan wranglings in the house mm-hmm. um, it you know that's just it, you know they're all they're all keen to fight um, they're playing for clips both every party is now they they love to uh, you know gin up the most uh, controversial comment they can and uh, run it for clips I mean I you know as much of a parliamentarian as Andrew Shear is I don't know if anybody's well I guess we don't get too much chance to ask him but I'd love to know what he thought about Damien Couric the uh, member for uh, uh, rural Alberta, who uh, deliberately, and this is not his first time doing this, um, announced, you know, called uh, Trudeau a liar yeah. in the House, and uh, this, you know, his own cons- a conservative deputy speaker uh, had to kick him out of the House when he refused to uh, comment. And that was clearly just for uh, just to prove a point, just to um, have a good clip afterwards. I'm not sure what a, a conservative House leader uh, would say about that sort of thing, but they, you know, they want. They want liberal blood. This is mm-hmm. uh, it's a blood, it's a blood sport venue, and um, do do Canadians uh, care about this? Certainly not to the level of uh, Anthony Rota. Um, a big question will be: uh, Do the Bloc and do the uh, Conservatives continue to push this point uh, with the same level of ferocity as they are yeah. exiting this uh, this sitting with? Um, you know, will will people? The public may not be talking about this in late January, but will uh, the Conservatives yeah. pick right up mm-hmm. afterwards? I think that's going to determine. Um, Know where this goes, yeah. or do they uh, just give him a chance and realize that uh, you know there's not a whole lot of public energy uh, with this fight? Su- Susan, as someone who reads Brian Mulroney's memoirs, <laughs> I- I'm just wondering. This is the worst I have seen the House of Commons in the seven years that I have been in Ottawa. And I look ahead to when the next election happens, the pressure release valve on this one. If Trudeau stays, as he says, and mm-hmm. if Polyev stays, as we all expect. I see the politics of the country just getting far worse because these two leaders really do not like each other. It is not an act. There yeah. is a contempt. I, I wrote about that this week. I, yep. st- I was in the House uh, watching a Carolyn Bennett tribute, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Polyev and, and Trudeau were alone uh, in the House. Well, there were other people around them, but and they sat, you know, this far apart, and they did not even exchange a glance. You know, it yeah. wasn't. And you often see that. Like yeah. I used to see in the Newfoundland legislature, premier and opposition leader chatting across the yeah, floor. No, they the don't look moment. at each other. No, right? they mm. don't. Um, again, um, 
I was here when Mulroney was here. Yep. Uh, something I've really seen over the years here is it was that there were friendships in other parties. Like, you would go across the street to highs, and there would be conservatives and liberals and New Democrats mm-hmm. sitting together, socializing. Yeah. That does not happen anymore. It was made worse during COVID, mm-hmm. because everybody yeah. went to their own little boxes. But the parties really don't socialize anymore with each other. You know that, and I'm not saying that everything is solved by a drink or a, a, thing, a but tea. They, a tea, <laughs> yes. But seeing but, the opponent as a human being yeah, is not and something happening. They, they really are othering each other in there, and they mm. really are. They, they really, really hate each other, and it's hard to watch. You know, I I used to enjoy watching Question Period. I do not enjoy watching it now. So, so Marie, just to bring this back to where this started with the Greg Fergus uh, question. Um, very early in his time as speaker, he stood up before question period and tried to say, I'm going to bring back decorum. And he was delaying the schedule mm-hmm. and interfering with the television coverage of question period. And the conservatives fought him every step of the way. And really, it felt like it should have been something, let's call in the House leaders and have a talk. Mm-hmm. And I'll let you know this is happening. With this dynamic, I mean, can he can he in any way get control of it? it do, I'm not convinced he problem. can. Like, yeah. I, I know yeah. it would be hard for anyone, but I think he has enough things on his record that it's going to be re- extra tough yeah. for Fergus. Yeah, that's the problem. I, I agree with Nigan and, and I think Jason that I don't think Canadians uh, care much if Parliament <laughs> is not working right now, and I don't think they'll be wondering the whole Christmas break if it's going to get solved. Um, but it does become an issue when, when, when it doesn't work and the government can't get anything through and things are just mm-hmm. not moving along, because you do need policy whether you all disagree about mm-hmm. it or not, like the government needs to work. Um, and I don't think the Conservatives or the Bloc are going to um, climb down from this. First of all, as you said, Mr. Fergus uh, made his bed. A video for an Ontario Liberal Party outgoing interim leader. A um, fundraising event for a Quebec Liberal Party MNA in his writing. Fine, but, you know. And the excuse of his office saying that the code of conduct hadn't been put into place yet. That's a lousy mm. excuse. Your speaker is supposed to be completely... Um, impartial and unpartisan. There's a reason they don't sit in caucus anymore. And so yeah. I don't see how Mr. Fergus can now all of a sudden say, I will have judgment after not having it for months. And I don't see how the Conservatives climb down for the toxic uh, climate you have mentioned or how the Bloc Québécois climbs down. They're yeah. not even addressing him as speaker anymore. Like, they won't even use the title. Uh, and today, in the last few minutes of, of the House, when he was preceding, uh, just before they rose for the break, he was being heckled. Um, yeah. And so it's hard for me to see how things can move on if, if the whole place is just dysfunctional. At some point, he might, or the mm. liberals might, have to recognize that this just isn't going to work. So, so Nigan, on this, this dynamic that, that is playing out in terms of the, the tone and the tenor of what happens in Parliament, and I know a lot of people don't watch it day to day to day, but, but there are some serious challenges facing the country right now. And, and, you know, if this place that is, you know, it's supposed to be where a lot of solutions are formed and found and, and turned into action isn't functioning in a way, I mean, does it lead to a disgust with politics? Does it lead to a frustration with politics if that serious issues are not being dealt with in a serious way because it's kind of a, a goat rodeo in the House of Commons? <laughs> well, I mean, I will tell you one thing that it's certainly given us a lot to talk about on this show. I mean, I can't think of anything uh, uh, that we've talked about more uh, other than maybe the carbon tax 
Maybe uh, we're talking about provincial premiers. Mm. I mean, it's right up there. The functionality of parliament has become kind of a dominant feature of politics in this country. Uh, Whether the federal leaders like each other, I don't know if that we've ever cared about that topic before, but we seem to care about it now uh, because there is that kind of rancor. But all of this is really being driven by the sort of cult of personality of Pierre Polyev. And I think we all just should just recognize that this is a figure that maybe has never been seen before on the Canadian political scene. Uh, He's been able to unite the conservative base in a way that has really fired up elements of the country. And you can call it the trucker convoy. You can call it uh, right-wing discontent. You can call it just people feeling apathetic and being interested in parliament. Uh, I mean, the fact is that Pierre Polyev has sort of energized that base within the country. And that has led to a whole bunch of people like ourselves interested in how Mm. the functionality of parliament is or is not working. And I think that that's an interesting trend that certainly gives us a lot to talk about. And I think that while Canadians may not be as interested, they certainly are interested in the kind of demonization of Trudeau. And that says a lot, I think, about what's been happening post-pandemic. Well, uh, Jason, just as a final point, because we're tight on time, uh, Pierre Polyev, I don't think he's created those sentiments that were out there, but he's speaking to them, right? Uh, You know, he has an ability to to see the anger that's out there and the frustration that's out there because it's premiers and others who are not cooperating well with this federal government because of all of these things. Uh, I I mean, how do you, where do you think this goes, uh, you know, just looking ahead to 2024 and when everybody comes back to Ottawa and is back uh, in business again? Well, he was very effective and he almost came to be a national figure on on Instagram and social media. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, we've uh, never seen more question period on social on Instagram and TikTok uh, <laughs> this year than uh, in any uh, of the previous years combined, likely. I don't have those metrics. That's just a guess. Um, but uh, it, you know, it's become this, uh, this place for spicy clips. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you talk to anybody analyzing what happens in the House, they talk about clips, and that goes with every provincial house as well now. That's just what you, what you produce it for. It's not Also for conspiracy theories. Well, that's, uh, you know, hope, hope, I guess uh, w- w- the opposite of hope springs eternal for that, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I mean, to Marie's point, going back to the the, the enmity yep. uh, with which the with, with which the block and conservatives hold the speaker, uh, it is challenging. When 139 of 338 members are opposed to uh, mm-hmm. and don't even yep. regard the as the speaker, if they keep this up, if they decide not to relent uh, in the new year, um, it may well be untenable uh, for them, and uh, they'll shine even more of a spotlight on uh, on the speaker's role by uh, demanding there be a third one in uh, f- a few months. All right, uh, we are out of time, uh, just just like the House of Commons. All right, gang, thank mm-hmm. you so much. And I thank the Power Panel, Nigan Sinclair, Jason Markasoff, uh, Marie Vastel, and Susan Delacroix. Have a happy holiday. This is my last show with you, gang. So thank you for coming in today. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.